You're listening to the Yoga Inspiration Podcast with me, your host, Kino McGregor. I created this series to keep you inspired to get on the mat every day so that you can practice yoga and change your world, starting from the inside out, one breath at a time. Thanks so much for listening. Your support means everything to me. Hi everyone, it's Kino here. Thanks so much for tuning in to the Yoga Inspiration Podcast. It really means a lot to me that you take time to share this journey together. And it keeps me inspired to read your messages of support. So please keep sending them and remember to leave a review if you haven't done that yet. This talk is one that came after a one-week Mysore intensive where I discussed a little bit about the Arishad Vargas or the six enemies of the heart and how we can work with the yoga practice as an antidote for this hardening of the heart that can happen sometimes. We follow with a student Q&A, and I hope you find both the discussion and the Q&A relevant for your personal practice. If you want to practice with me online these days, then I look forward to seeing you on omstars.com, on YouTube, and also in some Zoom classes. You can find all that info on my website at kinoyoga.com. I've got a new book called Get Your Yoga On, and it would mean so much to me if you would check that out. It's available for pre-order on Amazon, and it's a totally different approach to the practice than I've ever taken before, something really, really new. Thanks everyone for joining, checking in, and I hope you enjoy this episode and stay inspired to keep practicing. I don't think that everyone is going to be joining us. Some people had messaged me and said that the, it was going to be too late for them. So I'm recording the, this session and then I'm going to send you the link. Or I'm, going to, I'm going to do one of two things after. I'm going to send you the link and I'm also going to try to download it and upload it to Dropbox because we, we've been told that we're running low on Zoom storage space. So. If you, as soon as you get the link to download, try to download it right away. And we'll do the same thing over on our end and try to upload it to Dropbox just as a, as a backup. Okay, cool. So let's start off with the opening prayer and also the Yoga Anachitasya chant. If you're familiar with it, you can join along. Otherwise, uh, you can, for the second one, we, we won't do call and response. I feel it's just too weird on Zoom. Um, we could create some really violent feedback if we were to do that. So again, we'll do the opening prayer and then the yoga and a chant. If you're familiar with it, you can join in. Otherwise, uh, just listen to the chant and experience it. Okay. Vande Guru Nam Charanara Vinde Sandarshita Swatma Sukava Bode Nishreyase Jangalikayamane Samsara Hala Hala Mohashantie Abahu Purushakaram Shinka Chakrasidharinam Sahasrashirasam Shwetam Pranamami Patanjalim Yogena Chittasya Padena Vacham Malam Sharirasya Chavaidya Kena Yopakarotam Pravaram Muninam 
Patanjalim Pranjali Ranatosmi Good. Okay. Well, now we initiate our little, the space of our afternoon session here today. So before we get into any sort of discussion, the first thing I want to say to each of you is just thank you. It's been really, really wonderful to see each of you in your homes all over the world, really committed to the practice in you know, different spaces, people practicing in front of their beds and the dogs and kids popping in and all of that. It's just been really, really, really special to see. I know that you know, practicing at home can feel often you know, just hard to get yourself motivated and hard to really put in the work. So it's super helpful to have the feeling of community, even if that's virtual. And I hope that you felt a little inspired by the, the, uh, the virtual community of all the people practicing together. And, uh, you know, from my perspective, it uh, took me like, I think maybe two days to kind of get in the flow of like, okay, we can teach on Zoom. This is what it's like. And to come up with, you know, just like a system for interaction. Um, and, then, and then I think it is possible to have the feeling of a shared space. And when I'm teaching in person, one of the things that I've really shifted my emphasis on is, you know, in the beginning I was of, of teaching in the beginning of my yoga journey, I was very much interested in the experience of the postures and how the poses felt and the anatomical experience of the poses and how the asanas work and that sort of thing. But as I've you know, just kept practicing, I think, I think everybody who practices for more than 10 years reaches an exhaustion point with being fascinated by asanas. You know, there's some moment after maybe 10 years of practice that the asanas are not that fascinating anymore. Sure, we're, we keep the inspiration to practice, but there's something else going on that's more than just like, oh, I want to get the next headstand. You know, sure, it's always interesting to try a new pose, but try a new asana, this kind of thing. But um, in terms of teaching, just to share a little bit of, about my methodology as well, is that I no longer feel like the purpose of teaching is to put everybody in every pose, but instead to hold a space for people to do their practice. So this means that whatever space is being held, it's still really passed on to you as the student. And the space that we create is kind of a space that we create together. And then that is, again, a space for, for you to go into your practice, not for me to come in with you know, a strong authority and say, you know, do this, do that, do this, this kind of thing, but really to just create a, a really supportive environment so that you have the tools that you need to go a little bit further and to stay on the path. Because what, often, what so often happens is that without some kind of guidance, without some kind of clear direction, then you know, you very easily veer off the path. And I think for some of you that are home practitioners, you know, it's too easy when you're, if you practice at home to suddenly, you know, start cleaning your sofa or, you know, to start hatching an idea of, you know, maybe I should try to add these other stretches in right now. And is that a good idea? Is that not a good idea? It's not that you can't do that if it's appropriate, but that it's really easy for the mind to just go on little deviating spirals, you know, we can get these little ideas and there's no one watching us and we're just trying to make things work. So it's, again, it's super easy to, to do that. So when we come into like a Mysore room, it's not that 
in my opinion, it's not that we're there to have the teacher like yell at us and, or, or, you know, or, this, or create some kind of really unattainable high standard, but that there's an energy that supports our practice and that it's still ultimately your practice and it's still ultimately your body and it's still ultimately your experience and your journey. And that's, that's something that's very hard to communicate intellectually, but as a lived experience, you know, when it's something that gets programmed into your nervous system and you have this feeling, oh, I feel different when I'm in class, I feel different when I practice, then this makes a really, it just makes a big difference in sort of the quality of, of, of life after. So this is the, the sort of change in methodology I have placed and, and maybe it's a, a, a appropriate even to hold that space online. I start to place, you know, less emphasis on, you know, getting people deep into yoga poses and, but at the same time, you know, if someone can do, then sure do, but less emphasis on that has to be done in one way and more emphasis on and how, how is it appropriate for, for this student to do this pose? And this, I think, gives a lot of space in the Ashtanga tradition. You know, and the, as we know, as Ashtanga practitioners, each of you knows that Ashtanga yoga is very hard and very disciplined. It's probably, I can't think of another style of yoga that's harder than Ashtanga. You know, we, there's no other style of yoga that has these six series. I don't know, maybe there's some obscure style of yoga I don't know about invented by some like contortionist person out there that's harder than Ashtanga, but I have yet to practice in a class like that. So Ashtanga is probably the most demanding style of yoga that has made it into, you know, a, a space where there are enough people practicing. For many of us, we're working only on primary series and you already know that's hard, you know, just uh, like word Asana is hard for some of us, you know, and then to think about that there's a whole second series of poses and you look at those, you think, wow, those are really, really difficult. Then to think that, that now there's third series and then to think that it keeps going after that is kind of overwhelming. You know, it's like, wait a minute, why are there all these poses? Why are they all there? It's this daunting, endless, you know, mountain hike just forever and ever. You reach one peak. Yeah, I got to the end of primary series. Okay, start second series. Then you get to the end of second series. It's like, okay, great. Now there's third series. Like, when does it end? Like, never ends, you know? Occasionally, you know, Sharad will post some ridiculous posture from fifth or sixth series and we think, oh my goodness, you know, do I have to do that one day? So super important to understand that, that from my understanding is that the asanas are there to support your journey and where your journey is at, there's an asana for that. And there are, the reality is that there are people that have different body types. We come into the practice with different physical potentials, different experiences, different lived experiences, different levels of strength and flexibility. So that if there are, you know, if there are asanas that that are easy for you, great. That same asana may not be easy for someone else. And to have the space within the tradition to be able to modify and adjust so that everybody can come and learn and everybody can come and understand the essence of what the practice is really about is super important. Um, probably <clears throat> like 10 years ago, that would have been a controversial statement in the Ashtanga world. But I don't know how many of you joined uh, Sharat's class last weekend. Would you just raise your hand? You were there last weekend. Good. In the conference, when people asked about uh, the question uh, that was asked about, what do I do if I have a pain or if I have an injury? So uh, like 10 years ago, it, wouldn't, it would have been sort of super controversial to suggest that anyone modify any posture. But last week we have Sharat 
broadcasting to the entire world, you know, 1800 practitioners, you know, if you have a pain in your knee, please modify, don't do Lotus. You know, if you're injured, don't even do a full practice, just do sun salutations, just do a short practice. And so this is something that I really truly believe in earnest. And I think it can even go further than that and even break down the essence of the asanas into a super, you know, super accessible manner, depending on where you are and depending on where the student is, just depending, you know, have it be extremely flexible. So if we think about that, the flip side of that, however, is that yoga can't just be a downward spiral into nothingness, you know? So I'm going to do whatever feels good for me today. And that's, that's the other end of the spectrum. Uh, very rarely does anybody practicing Ashtanga go too far on that spectrum. Ashtanga, people who are drawn to Ashtanga are, are drawn to the discipline and they will very rarely tune into what feels right for themselves for the day. So I feel the Ashtanga people, like we often need to be told, it's okay to tune into how your body feels and it doesn't feel good. It's okay to not do that asana today. You know, because you probably know if you skip a posture, then I'm sure you've all felt, I've felt as well, there's like a guilt. You're like, ooh, I didn't do it. Ooh, I'm bad. You know, let me feel bad. And then we like, maybe you skipped it because it was unintentional. I've done that before where I've gone through my whole practice and I just skipped the posture, not intentionally, I just forgot it. And then I remembered like after the practice, I was like, oh, and I felt bad for the rest of the day. Oh, I forgot. Should I do it twice the next day to like make up for it? You know, so this is, this is very much how many Ashtanga practitioners are. We take it seriously. We take the discipline seriously. You know, if we're told to relax, we're like, I'd rather not, you know, can I, instead of relaxing, can I do it three more times? You know, so very rarely, again, do we have, do we have that other end of the spectrum? So, and this is, you know, I feel Ashtanga really emphasizes what many people call the yang element of the practice. If we look at Patanjali's Yoga Sutras, we have the emphasis on the abhyasa, which is practice, translated from Sanskrit into English as the effort. So we have this emphasis on effort. And the interesting thing about this is that the people who are drawn to the effort, the real lesson to learn is actually how to temper that effort with its balanced point. So if we're familiar with this Yoga Sutra, it's abhyasa, so vairagya is the non-attachment, is the, the feeling, the sensitivity, the letting go. And that's a very difficult thing for people who are comfortable with work and effort to really grasp. If, you, if you're comfortable with, you know, I get in my mat, I practice six days a week, I do what it takes. Then if it's like, okay, well, also try to relax and take it easy and tune into how you feel for today because... Maybe if you just want to, you know, relax for today, that's okay too. We're like, but that's cheating. You know, I don't want to cheat. I'm not a cheater. Right? So we kind of tie ourselves up in these little loops. People that don't come, don't practice Ashtanga. And I, 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 I end up teaching sometimes people that, that have no idea what Ashtanga is, but end up signing up for like a full primary series class because they, you know, saw a YouTube video of mine and then show up in class and they're like, hi. <laughs> and I can almost tell from the way a person walks into the room if they've done Ashtanga before or not. It's the way the person walks into the room, where they put their mat. I can almost within 30 seconds be like, oh, this is going to be difficult for you. Or, you know, cool, you know what you're doing. And then the, the person who's not, you know, the Ashtanga practitioner, the way they walk into the room, it's very much this kind of 
sensation, pleasure seeking kind of like, well, this is what's right for me. And I kind of like my mat over here and I'd like this experience. And could we open the window? Cause I like a little breeze and I want to have my little water bottle over here and my stuff like this and all like organized in this really, you know, kind of, uh, this, this like sensory pleasure based experience. Not that that's bad again. And the interesting thing that, that happens is when that person is asked to discipline, their response is almost what the uh, what what we Ashtangis almost need to learn. Their response is like, hmm, I don't know how that feels for me today. I don't know if I really need to do five of those sun salutation A's. I feel already warm. I think one is enough. You know? We would never say that. I mean, imagine saying that. You would never say that. It's just so foreign, you know. Oh, you know, I think today. I don't even want to do all of primary. I'm just going to lie in a bolster instead. Even you would be like, it's like doesn't compute in the mind. And so it's, again, what's interesting if we look back to Patanjali is that the path of yoga is this equalization of these two seemingly opposite pieces, right? So we have Vairagya, this super relaxed, non-attachment, just tuning into whatever you feel and following that and this kind of very fluid, almost, you know, yin space versus the abhyasa, the effort the discipline. And then what Patanjali says is it's not one or the other, but that these two states together create nirodaha or stillness. And nirodaha is what we're after in the yoga practice for a couple of, for a couple of reasons. I mean, first it's what Patanjali defines as the state of yoga, you know, yoga shchita vriti nirodaha, but the nirodaha state, the state of stillness allows us access into something else that's bigger and grander. So we'll talk about that in a moment. So the question to ask yourself over and over again is which, which space do I need to emphasize and what lesson is coming up for me right now? So if you're someone that, you know, gears on the side of discipline, then to embrace a little bit of Vairagya in your practice can be really, really useful. And there are, uh, there are numerous ways to think about how you can em- embrace Vairagya in your practice without necessarily, you know, just doing a restorative class where you lie in a bolster for an hour. Probably the first and most important tool is to engage in positive self-talk. And this is something that you'll know what's going on inside your mind. So when when the days come up that you're not able to do what you want to do, on those days, the negative self-talk will be at a fever pitch and it'll be coming up to you speaking, you know, speaking those, you know, those falsehoods about you're not good enough if you don't do all your practice, you know, you're a cheater if you skip this pose, like that negative self-talk. On days that your body is truly at its limit, if you know you're feeling some tweaks or pains in the body, that fever pitch of negative self-talk is is what you want to work with in the state of gentleness and the state of vairagya. So then you're able to soften it. You're able to dial it down a little bit and say, you know what, this is uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna embrace non-attachment. I'm gonna let go of my discipline right now. And be disciplined about something else. And, and this is you know, a, a way that you can actually pragmatically work with that. And I can't tell you how many times I've struggled with that myself, where something I used to be able to do, then I suddenly can't do it. And then the negative self-talk starts over and over again. Or an injury. If you have an injury that comes up to the surface again, and then you think it's healed or it's taking a long time to heal. And then the negative self-talk can just start to spin in a spiral. So to work with vairagya can be to work with changing those negative, negative 
repetitive patterns of thoughts into something a little bit softer, into something a little bit more kind towards yourself and letting yourself off the hook here and there, understanding that that, that, that is a lesson in practice as well and that that counts also, right? The, 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 the other important state about Nirodaha, and this is something that's a little bit more esoteric, so it's a little harder to understand. We spend so much time in the disciplined aspect of practice trying to train the mind. And so we're in this mind training. You know, we train the mind yoga, chitta vritti nirodaha. And then we're in, and then what this literally means is that, you know, the state of yoga is the restraint, right? The stilling of the revolutions or the fluctuations, the thought forms that come into the mind. And so we're interested in this state of nirodaha. But we have to ask the deeper question, why are we interested in Nirodaha? What is the purpose of Nirodaha? Because if we think that that is the goal, then we haven't read the next couple of sutras and we don't understand what the bigger picture is. So stillness by itself is simply a mirror. And a, a, a way that we think about this, if we go yoga chitta vritti nirodaha, the next sutra, tada drashtu shwarupe avashtanam. So then the, when the mirror is clean, then there's no stuff on the mirror. There are no occlusions on the mirror. These would be the vrittis. When those have been wiped clean, then you have a clean mirror. Then swarupe avashtanam. Swarupe, the seer, rests in its own true nature. You can see the truth. That's why we want the state of nirodaha, right? And that's the important thing about the stilling of the mind is that no matter how much you're working for, the idea is to create enough space so that the mind itself becomes a clear mirror. Um, recently, I was listening to a talk by, uh, I was reading a book by Yangi Mingya Rinpoche, who's a, there's a really wonderful book that he wrote called In Love with the World. Just to give you a little bit of context, if you, have you heard, would you raise your hand if you've heard of Yangi Mingya Rinpoche? He's a younger Tibetan teacher, and uh, he was also an incarnate tulku. And what this means is that they've identified that he is, you know, this reincarnated lama from I don't know in the past somewhere. I don't know exactly which tool, which reincarnation he is. Some reincarnation, something. Write his name down. Yes, I will. Hold on, I'll do that right now. Yes, I will. Youngy. Okay, good. It's in the chat now. Great. Good. Okay. Great. Awesome. So, uh, Yangi Mingya Rinpoche is a, was an incarnate tulku, and, uh, which means that he, upon his birth, had received uh, the uh, inheritance of being the abbot of numerous monast- monastic traditions. So he essentially just, like he was he inherited just from being recognized as a tulku, oh, you're going to have to, when you get older, take care of all these monasteries. So he was treated from the moment that he was born like a prince in the tr- Tibetan tradition. So at some moments, uh, he got this idea in his mind that it would be amazing to do what is traditionally called a wandering retreat. And there, maybe it's a tradition that perhaps you haven't heard of before, but the Tibetan yogi called Milarepa was famous for doing a wandering retreat. And so a wandering retreat is when you give up all your worldly possessions and you live as a beggar and you just wander with no worldly possessions, no plan, nowhere to sleep at night, no money to your name. You live off of what's given to you and you just exist. Well, so here's Yangi Mingya Rinpoche, the recipient of this very privileged life uh, in, in living in with sort of all of the, you know, all, all, all of all of the help that you could possibly imagine. He said that he'd never traveled without an attendant. And he was, I think, uh, in his late, mid-30s when he did this retreat. So he'd never, exper- he'd never 
paid for anything in his entire life. He had always had someone that would go and buy a train ticket for him or go and buy food if they were going around. He'd never, he'd spent his life either in a monastery or when he left the monastery to be, uh, you know, guided by an attendant. Anyhow, he had gone on this wandering retreat and wrote this book about his experience called In Love with the World. That's a really, really wonderful book. I think that it is extremely relevant to where we're all at right now, right? So but he talks about the experience of going on this wandering retreat of stripping away all of the layers of ego, everything that you've identified with at so, is slowly being just ripped away. Every distraction, everything that you've ever known, just slowly is being ripped away. And for him, it was a voluntary choice, but he had a lot of resistance to it, you know? And it wasn't like from one day to the next, he could snap his fingers and go from being Yangi Mingyur Rinpoche, respected tulku of the Tibetan tradition to wandering itinerant, nameless, penniless yogi sleeping under a tree. So it's a really, it's a really, really wonderful read. He talks about his experience as being in one of the Tibetan bardo states. If you're familiar with the Tibetan bardo states, these are traditionally taught as things that you experience uh, in, after you leave this body, but he brings it into teachings that you can experience in different states in this body, in this lifetime. And his experience there was in the bardo of becoming. And the bardo of becoming is when you're, when you, when you're in this in-between space where the old has not yet died, but the new has not been born. And it's extremely uncomfortable. You grasp for solidity. You grasp for certainty. The mind's natural tendency is to go back to what it knew before rather than create what is new or give space to what is new. And so he was in this space where he volunteered to be, you know, to have all of his identification stripped away. We're not in the space right now where we volunteered for this, but all of many of our identifications are being stripped away. Those of us who are yoga teachers, we're teaching like this now, you know, we're, we miss that space. So people are losing their jobs, their, you know, their livelihoods, their whole identity. If you had some semblance of what normalcy was, it's gone for right now. We don't know when it'll come back. So I find this, this uh, analogy of the bardo of becoming extremely, extremely relevant and what it does to the mind and the quality of the mind. Well, the reason I brought that all up was in the relation to this concept of nirodaha. So what Mingyur Rinpoche, what he's saying uh, in, in the, I think it's the beginning of the book was he says that so many people get obsessed with trying to still their mind for the sake of stilling their mind. So then they get so focused on technique so for example, in meditation, we get so focused on, I need to focus on the breath, focus on the breath, focus on the breath. In, you know, in Ashtanga, we get so focused on, I got to do every breath with every movement. I got to do it really, really right. We get so focused on that, but we miss the point. So he says, listen, you are trying to calm your mind. You're trying to control your mind. Great, do that. But please understand what he says. This is him talking. He says, please understand, I'm trying to get you to realize that you are not your mind. And, and that, you know, that really, really, really spoke to me. I just felt like, yes, of course, Nirodaha is not the end. Nirodaha is a, a clear mirror. But if you stop at stillness and think, okay, well, I'm just trying to still my mind. It's just there. Then we never get that reflective mirror into kind of that grand, bigger perspective of, oh, I'm, I'm supposed to recognize a sense of identity that's not rooted in the mind that that is actually the path rather than trying to control the mind. So the, the purpose of those moments of stillness, which will come and which will go, again, is that clear mirror 
to recognize, oh, I'm not my mind. But if you're not your mind, then the question is, well, so who am I then? And, and that's a question for you to, you know, for you to answer over and over and over again and to seek for that answer over and over again. And that is the essential seeker's question. You know, who am I? Who am I without this? Who am I without that? Who am I without this? Once you're stripped of the identities, it, that question of who am I begins to really, really bubble up to the surface. And, when, and, and, and that, that's a discomfort I think many of us are sitting with now, the question of, of I, the question of ego, the question of who have I been and what will become of me? You know, where, where am I going? Where is all of this going? Because we are also identified with our worlds. If we, you know, if we have the ego in the small self in us, we also have the ego kind of in the world. And there's this, you know, there's this identification with the world that really, really comes up. That when we look around and we see things changing, it fills us with a deep uncertainty that's very, very hard to sit with. But again, the whole purpose of our yoga teaching is to bring us into this pivotal moment so we can train our mind to be that very, very clear and reflexive mirror. So one of the things I've noticed, a couple of like practical things I've noticed throughout this week is that it's very, very difficult to find this coordination of breath and movement. But the breath is a crucial point or part of the practice. But having this coordination of breath and movement is extremely advanced, we could say. So why is the breath important and what does the breath teach us about our practice? So I, there, are, there were two sutras I wanted to read to you, wherever they are. I need to mark them. But I have a lot of marks in this book. Yeah. So when we talk about pranayama, we talk about the breath control, that there is a, a very, something extremely important that happens when we think about the breath. Without controlling the breath and the practice, without moving in coordination with breath and movement, the pure difficulty of the postures will accelerate the breath and disturb the nervous system. And, you know, you can think, there are some postures that just you have to think about and it starts to disturb your breathing. Can you, can you think of one of those right now? Then you just think about like, ugh, that one, ugh. You know, I, I definitely have some of those. And if I think about like some fourth series pose that I feel I'm doing quite badly now or something like that, then I think, oh no. I, I, you know, or, or that, or the idea that, oh, now my teacher is going to come and assist me in this pose. My breath, you can feel it. It, it, it. So the asanas without some sort of conscious control of the breath will disturb your nervous system. So then when we add in the tool of the breath, we add in a really interesting tool to be able to feel and be present with the subconscious mind. And many of you have heard me say this numerous times, but it's so important that we work with the subconscious mind. All of the thoughts that we think, out of all the thoughts that we think in every day, the vast majority of these thoughts live in the subconscious mind. And, you know, there's this, uh, I think it, I can't remember which institute it is. It was the Institute of Health, the National Institute of Health or Mental Health or something in the United States. Uh, Some years ago has come up with this statistic that the average person thinks somewhere around 60,000 thoughts per day, which is a staggering amount of thoughts. And that out of those thoughts, the vast majority of them, upwards of around 80%, skew towards negative. And, and that's astounding when we think about that. And not only are they negative, but they're repetitive, which means that they're the same old stories that get rehashed over and over again. And the majority of this thinking, 95% of this thinking happens in the subconscious mind. So in the subcon- it's going on without you being aware of it. 
So you're thinking these thoughts, which have a power and an inertia. Me too. You know, we all are thinking these thoughts fueled by the power of the subconscious mind. It's driving itself forward without any, you know, without anything to temper it. Without the tool of the breath, the yoga practice, unfortunately, can sometimes fuel the subconscious patterns because your breath gets accelerated, the posture's there. What are the subconscious patterns often related to? We go back into the yoga, the yoga teaching. The yoga teaching says our subconscious patterns can always be boiled down to craving and clinging. These two things were either craving for something, you know, or clinging to something, craving for something to go away, which is aversion, clinging to something to stay, which is attachment to pleasure. So we ping pong between this craving, clinging, or attachment aversion. And that all of our subconscious thoughts without the tools of our spiritual practice can be reduced to this back and forth, back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. I want this thing which feels good. I don't want this thing which feels bad. And then we create larger cycles about that and then get trapped by them. Without the tool of breath-body coordination, then the yoga practice would just give us more fuel down the subconscious, down the subconscious pattern. So if you practice unconsciously, you know, if you come into your practice and you practice unconsciously, you could actually be continuing to work the same patterns in the mind. But if you practice consciously, which is by adding in your breath, then we can begin to see, to see through that barrier between the conscious and the subconscious mind. And this is, this is deeply confrontational. You know, when those patterns that are inside the subconscious mind, when they come up to the surface, this is not like what's in there, as we talked about it, these patterns of craving and clinging. It's not like, you know, there's a, it's not like there's a, a birthday present waiting there for you. You know, it's not like, look what I have to dug out of my subconscious mind. You know, it's usually something that's less than a present. We're like, oh, great. Now I get to look at that for a little while. It's awesome. But without that, will never be free of it. So this is the sutra I wanted to read to you about the, this is from, it's book two, number 52. All right, I'll put that in the chat in case you're interested. I'll just put 2.52, okay? Um, and the Sanskrit, tata, chiate, prakashavaranam. So we can break that down. Chiate is a really interesting one. So this is, this is also, you can find ashtadikshaye. Um, uh, it's a similar root. So we're thinking about what gets weakened? So kshiyate is weakening. What gets weakened? Right? The, we're looking at avaranam, which is the barrier between the conscious and the subconscious minds. The barrier between one reality and another reality. The barrier between truth and untruth. And then if this kshiyate, right weakens, the barrier between the conscious and the subconscious mind is weakened, then we have this state of prakasha, which is illumination, meaning you can finally see it. You can really see it. Then there's the notion of bringing whatever is hidden up into the surface. And this sutra is talking about that this happens only through the work with the breath, only with deep work with the breath. It's that barrier between worlds, the barrier between the conscious and the subconscious mind weakens. And, you know, I mean, my, my teacher, Patabi Joyce, used to say, you know, the yoga practice is a breathing practice. Otherwise, it's just bending. And this is, you know, super <laughs> kind of colloquial way of saying what Patanjali is saying, that unless you are working with the more subtle aspects, 
then the subconscious mind can stay buried the entire time. You can be doing the same thing over and over again, practicing unconsciously, thinking that you're doing the deep work of the spiritual practice, or even just like bopping around, doing one pose and then another pose. But if the breath is not present, if the subtle aspects of the practice are not present, then that barrier between the conscious and the subconscious mind might not be lessened. So I see this, people who maybe dabble in yoga a little bit here and there and think they love yoga and then come take an Ashanga class and are like, this is way too much. This is super confrontational. This is, you know, it's me and my stuff and my thoughts. And I didn't really like, it's really demanding and it's really difficult. And I'm not really into this. I had a, a, a student who was extremely physically talented here in Miami. She was extremely physically talented. She could do almost all the postures. And then uh, she started doing second series, which is really quite challenging. And then she started to have, for the first time, uh, negative thoughts that sort of bubbled up to the surface. She started to have back pain uh, that she'd never had before. And then she came to me one day and said, listen, I'm sorry. I really see how this yoga practice is bringing up all of my subconscious patterning, just like you say it is. It's bringing all this up to the surface. I come to the mat and I see all these thoughts that I thought I didn't think anymore and I realize they're still in my mind and I can see that maybe if I keep practicing, I'll finally be able to work through all of this. And then I'm like, okay, I'm just like waiting for him. I'm like, yeah, awesome, so great. And then she said, but, I'm like, oh no, here we go. But, but. I just don't have space for this in my life right now. I, you know, I have a job and I feel like I, I really need to do a good job at my work. And, you know, it's just too difficult. And if I go into this whole yoga practice and start working on myself, then I don't know who I'll be. So I'm so sorry. At some moment later, uh, I'll come back to yoga. But for now, I just want you to know, I really respect the yoga. I believe it works. It's just not for me right now. And I said, oh, okay, well, <coughs> we'll still be here. But what are you going to do instead? And she said, oh, I already signed up for spinning. <laughs> it was like, spinning? Why spinning? And she literally said to me, because they let you eat a sandwich before you come into class. And I was like, if it's about the sandwich, I'll give you a sandwich. Like, if you really, if you need the sandwich, you can, have, you can have your sandwich. Like, no, it's not that. It's just... They don't make you think about things. They put on music and I can zone out. And I was like, right, if you need to zone out, yoga, this Ashtanga is not for you. You should not come into your Ashtanga practice and zone out. You need to be fully present. It's for numerous reasons, you know? Um, The first of which is what I was talking about before is that we're not going to do this deep work, this cleansing work. You have to be a seeker if you want to practice the Ashtanga method. It's not a casual method. You know, it's something you have to really, really be a seeker. You know, the... The, the Osho, who is a little bit of a controversial, you know, spiritual figure, he used to say that for people to come to the spiritual path, to be willing to put in the work, like the difficult work that we're talking about of excavating this subconscious patterning, he says it really has to be like a life or death decision, that you have to be willing to put your heart and soul into it. And if you're not, then all those temptations, you know, like the, let me just go to spinning and put on techno music and like zone out and rock out to it. It's just too tempting. It's just too seductive. You know, it's just, it's just, it, that, that pleasure attraction is just too powerful uh, of an inertia, right? The other, the secondary benefit that I wanted to bring up 
uh, with the, particularly with this combination of bringing the breath into the practice is the relationship of the breath to that state of nirodaha, that state of stillness. This is actually the next sutra. So this is the 253. So if you look up 252, you'll find the next one. Um, and I'll read it to you in the Sanskrit. Dharanas sucha yogyata manasaha. So manas, let's break that down. So manas is one of the Sanskrit words for minds. So you'll sometimes hear chitta, and uh, chitta is inclusive of the concept of manas. So we have this Sanskrit concept of manas, the mind. So what is happening now as we begin to coordinate breath with body, with the practice, and we start to be able to uh, weaken uh, that covering between conscious and subconscious mind? Well, now we have this word dharana, dharana concentration. When the mind, when, that, when the state of manas begins to be fit for concentration, what this means, and this is a sutra saying that the mind becomes fit for concentration, so manas has now the capacity for dharana, concentration. And without the faculty of concentration, there's no deep spiritual work that can happen. If the mind is ping-ponging here and there and here and there and here and there, that deep focus to be able to first achieve the state of nirodaha and second, stay present to what is clearly reflected in the mirror of nirodaha. So we're, remember what we're after is we're, we're stilling the mind so we can recognize that we're not the mind so that we can wake up to that greater reality. If we're unable to stay concentrated long enough to have either the mind still or to reach and tap into the unconscious mind, the subconscious mind, then there's no possibility for the deep work of yoga to actually happen. And this is something that Patanjali says happens when we unite breath and body, when we actually begin to apply the tool of the breath into our daily practice. Whether we do that through concentrated breath work or we do that through combining breath with asana, that is probably the, one of the most important tools that you can integrate into sort of taking your practice to another level. It's one thing to just boom, boom, hit the poses. You know, you go in, you hit this pose, you hit that pose, you do that there. It's a totally other thing to go into the pose with deep yogic breathing that's really resonant, that's really, really long and deep. If you think about it right now, you can probably identify some places in your practice where the breath is usually not as deep as you would like it. Can you just think about that for a moment? Can you identify some places? Yeah, I see some heads nodding. The most common ones are, you're probably going to agree with me on this, chaturanga, up dog, and down dog. We're like, chaturanga, especially when we jump back and we jump through. This is kind of like happens really, really quickly. If you think back, for those of you that have been doing some of the guided classes with Sharat over the weekends, one of the things that's probably immediately reflected back to you is, I don't stay in Chaturanga very long. You know, that's interesting. This is a very long upward dog, right? And so we think, what am I doing in my own practice? You know, if you think about how long that primary series took, the primary series is like an hour and 45 minutes. We're here, we're jumping here, we're jumping there, we're going here, we're going there. What are we doing? How long it takes you to do primary series by yourself, you know? Maybe, what do we think, like hour and five minutes, you know, sometimes, so yeah, then 60 minutes, maybe a little bit longer if we're really dedicated, you know, uh, Barry and I, we did a class on YouTube and she's so easily in and out of the postures. We did the whole primary series less than an hour, like 58 minutes, 
And then, you know, everybody's leaving comments. Oh, it's so fast. Oh, it's so fast. And it's like, well, this is, you know, once you get proficient in the poses, the places where you would use time is like figuring out how to get into Marichasana C, figuring out how to get into Marichasana D, looking up at the, looking up being like, so how do I get my arm around? Once you know how to do that, you know, then we're, then we're doing it quite quickly, unless we slow the breath down. And so that's something that really is like taking the practice to a whole other level. I'll be honest with you. I practice quickly. I breathe quickly too when I'm on my own. And normally because I have in my mind, I have something to do later. I don't know if many of you have that as well. It's something in your mind. Oh, I got to do this later. So then there's a distraction. The mind is not fit for concentration. I don't have the breath. I'm not inwardly focused. I'm thinking about what I have to do after, you know, or even worse, if distractions start coming in during practice, doorbell rings, you know, my husband starts cooking something, making coffee, or just asking questions, talking, of, you know, people talking to you during practice about non-practice related things. This is extremely distracting, you know, and this is even more present when we're home. We're home and sometimes, you know, our families treat our practice time as the time to have conversations with us, you know, oh, look, she's quiet, you know, let's talk to her now. And it's like, no, I'm not really, <laughs> I'm quiet, but it's not, I'm not really available for conversation right now. So when we think about, we think about this, it's not, again, it's not a thing to, you know, get into a negative spiral about, but it's an invitation to at certain points in the practice, emphasize deeper breathing. And so uh, when we think about this, a couple of things, first of all, sun salutations, this is a great place to think about the complete breath for chaturanga, up dog and down dog. It'll help you warm up for the practice. And you can do that at a time when you still feel like there's time. So staying just like an extra millisecond here and there in chaturanga will make your body so much stronger over time, as long as you have the strength to be able to hold that there. Skipping the little like extra millisecond hold in chaturanga here and there is a way kind of for your body to uh, just avoid doing some of the work. And chaturanga is not a posture where we want to take it easy, unless we have an injury or something like that that we're working on or that it's completely inaccessible to us for other reasons. But if it's, it's accessible for you and you can, at least in the sun salutations, slow down the breath so that you can take that full length of your exhalation in chaturanga, up dog, down dog, and in all of the movements of the sun salutations. When you do that, here's a way for you to think about how to integrate that into your practice, that your breath is coordinated with the movements so that it's not like inhale and then I raise my arms, that the entire length of the inhalation uh, goes for the entire length of the movements. And you reach the pinnacle of the movements at the pinnacle of the breath. And the same thing happens with the forward fold. So as you fold forward, you use a complete exhalation to reach that bottom point of the forward fold. And this is, uh, and then it continues, you know, up, you don't need me to talk you through the sun salutation. You understand what I'm saying. So, so now when, when you begin then to come into the standing poses, you know, the natural, the, the mind is not able to maintain that kind of depth. It's okay. Return to it at the very end of practice so that at least for, you know, maybe not shoulder stand yet but at least headstand and the last three poses that you return to the length and fluidity of the breath so that we kind of get that full circle that, you know, that full, the full circle of the practice 
at least culminating in this kind of breath-body unity, which Patanjali is talking about. If you do that, if you spend the time, and I know it's super easy, and the reason I'm bringing that up is that it's super easy, particularly for the last three poses, to again, just rush through those last three poses. It's like the finish line, you know, we're here, we fold forward, 10 breaths becomes three, then we come up, Padmasana, we're like, eh, Uplutihi, sometimes it's one of these like, I was told to check in with how I feel, and I feel like lying down, right? So we don't want to do that in Uplutihi, right? Unless you're injured and we need to modify for some reason, of course, that's always okay. But when you're thinking about the last three poses, these are the most meditative aspects of the practice. These are the most introspective time in the practice. And this is also the time when you can steep in that space of the barrier between the conscious and the subconscious mind being lessened. And it's so important to steep in the space of practice for a little bit. So that at the end of practice, you don't just jump right up and start going back into the old patterns. It's so easy to jump right up and start taking care of stuff. But taking that time in the last three poses helps you steep in the energy of the practice, in that in-between space between the conscious and the subconscious mind, in the space where the old pattern is maybe not working to the degree that it normally is, where there's a little bit of a pause. So it's, again, it's super important to take that time. You might not be able to, at the end of practice, sit in meditation for a period of time. You know, again, we do have lives and things that are going on. But if you slow down the breath doing, during those last three poses, and yes, Ublutihi too, slow down the breath in Ublutihi as well, then whatever moments you do take into your final relaxation will be just a little bit deeper. You might find that the mind is able to slip into a more subtle state and that there, that there is this experience of, you know, the covering between the conscious and the subconscious mind being removed. So I'm not sure if it's in the, I don't think it's in Patanjali's Yoga Sutras. It's in another one of these little Samhita books where they say that when this covering between the conscious and the subconscious mind is removed, between, you know, uh, between the, what they call the veil between worlds, when that gets removed, that there's this experience of light, like actual light that seems to appear um, uh, in the sort of the dawn of the forehead. And, and what is written about is that when you close the eyes, it's the feeling of light on the horizon. And that's something that I think that each of you probably has experienced, at least here or there, or can get to that at place, particularly in the last three poses. So do you know the drishti for yoga mudra? What do you think? So point at your nose if you think it's your nose. And then you can point at the eyebrows if you think it's the eyebrows. Good. It's the eyebrows. So at the end, we're looking, we're looking at the eyebrow center in yoga mudra. Whenever you have the eyebrow gaze, the optic nerve crossing, it's the optic nerve is also crossing down here. But whenever you have the eyebrow gaze, both the optic nerve is crossing and then the, the whatever energy is worked in the body is encouraged to go up into the brain. And so we have all of these kind of like esoteric transcendental things that uh, happen in the yoga practice. And they're all related to an activation of the pineal gland. Pineal gland, you know, it's like sitting behind the center inside the brain. When we, we fold forward in yoga mudra, the gaze is pushing up here. This is encouraging, again, our, our different centers in the brain to open. It's encouraging the dialing down of the, of the centers inside of our brain, which, which are fueled by craving and clinging. And it's encouraging, again, activation of the pineal gland and 
a more, a more kind of transcendental state. Another thing that goes on when we have this gaze up here, the, you know, the eyebrow sensor gaze, is it's encouraging coherence between the right and left hemisphere of the brain. When you have brain hemisphere coherence, this is obviously a state of deep balance, but it's also a state of nirodha. When the hemispheres are, are coherent and balanced, they're also very, very calm, and there's less thinking that's going on, which is extraordinary. Um, I don't know about you, but when less thinking is going on, I find that to be extraordinary and something really, really powerful. So when we're up here, you'll feel it if you really do that drishti and energetically. The idea is not to like furrow your brow and try to see something up here. None of the drishtis are meant for you to try to see something. Like you don't need to like, you know, inspect your fingers and evaluate whether you did a good job or not painting your nails, that kind of thing. It's not like the drishti is not like that. Although sometimes we do that. We're like, oh, that was a bad pedicure, um, which is totally fine. But you make a note of that. And then the drishti is to concentrate the mind. Um, so if we have, again, the last poses, then when the gaze comes up here in yoga mudra, we sit in Padmasana. Now, if you're doing a little bit of breath work, you know, Sharad is recommending this alternate nostril breathing. Uh, there are many other pranayamas that can be done exactly there as well. That's the point in your practice where you're going to be able to tune into this light on the horizon. In the pranayama, it can be very useful to have the eyes almost closed. Not closed, but almost closed. And that will encourage that feeling of uh, the more subtle awakening at this eyebrow center level. So almost closed. If you close the eyes too much, completely, then sometimes you can zone too much out, fall asleep, or start like having too many visions playing things in the mind. So the eyes sort of just like slits almost closed during that and also during Padmasana. This is, what help, this is what helps with gazing at the nose, so that when we gaze at the nose, this is helping bring the eyes sort of back down. Okay, there was one other sutra that I wanted to share with you, which I think is from, ah, yes. This is the first sutra from book three, so like 3.1, all right. And it's interesting, you know, like Yoga Sutra book three is one of these ones where people are like, eh, we don't really talk about book three because it starts to say weird things at some moment, you know, we're like, oh, then suddenly we're going to have this mystical power where we're going to appear in multiple places at the same time. Uh, I don't know, but like maybe now is the time we need to read book three because now we can't go on the airplane. So we need to be appearing in different parts of the world. You know, that could be something to think about right now. You know, if you could do some breath work and appear on, the, on, on a remote island in Fiji, I don't think that would necessarily be so bad right now, you know? as long as no one else is there, you know, it could freak some people out. So anyhow, I'm just saying that because it's interesting to take a look at some of the sutras in book three. The, the beginning of book three completes Patanjali's discussion of the eight limbs. So if you, if you notice in book two, Patanjali does not finish uh, the discussion of the yoga sutra, uh, the eight limbs. So he continues to uh, finish that in the book three. And that is interesting, at least for the beginning. So anyhow, Beginning of book three, Desha Bandhas Chitasya Dharana. So now we talk about what Dharana is, the ability to, and you have, you recognize the word Bandha, right? Chita Bandha. And this is sort of the unspoken Bandha 
that every yoga practitioner needs to really be cultivating. And we understand chitta bandha is maybe equally, if not more important than mula bandha. Because if the mind doesn't have what's called an anchor, then there's no hope of achieving nirodaha. The Tristana method is essentially built to give your mind one of three anchors to rest on during the practice. And just to review how that works, we have the anchor of the breath. And so we could constantly bring our attention to the breath. This is a very typical meditation anchor as well. The difference between meditation and asana, there are numerous differences, but with the breath work, our breath is conscious and intentional during asana. During meditation, it's natural and fluid. And however it arises, it can also be choppy, but however it shows up. So we have the anchor of the breath. And this is one of the chitta bandhas, the place to keep the mind bound. If you're not constantly thinking of the breath during the practice, then this is the breath will again just go away and we'll lose the subtle elements of that kind of inner awakening. The second anchor is asana itself, but the asana is needs to be unpacked because if we think that asana is an anchor by itself, what asana points to is the anchor of body sensation. Body sensation. What are you feeling in the practice? And this is what asana is meant as a tool to be, to awaken sensations in sort of the, the field of the body. Uh, the third anchor, drishti, but drishti is not just the focal point, meaning where you're looking, but it's where the mind is. And so this is where we get into that subtle work of changing negative thoughts to positive thoughts and looking at what we're actually thinking about, where our mind is actually going during the practice. Probably one of the worst practices you can have is when your mind is so distracted that you're unable to concentrate. I don't know if you've had, I'm sure we've all had practices like that, whether your mind's distracted about some annoying situation that's in your life or whether the mind is just jumpy uh, and thinking about random things, unimportant things. You know, your mind is thinking about, oh, you know, I want to do some gardening later and I really like uh, flowers. I want to get some new flowers, but where do I buy flowers now? All the shops are closed. This is it's just useless you know, ruminations of the mind, uh, you know, and this is unfortunately the, 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 the nature of mind to do that. Now we have these three anchors. So when we think about chitta bandha through our asana practice, constantly remember that this is what the Tristana method is about, that the Tristana method, the Ashtanga method is that. It is not the accumulation of many, many poses. If you accumulate many, many poses, but we're not engaged in this chitta bandha effort, then we're not going to reach that state of nirodaha. We're not going to reach that state where the mind is this reflective, clear mirror. Instead, we're going to use asanas just as like a rat race so that we then accumulate more and more poses. Just like if we, don't, if we get out of the yoga world, then we can enter some other rat race and then try to get you know, more and more money in our bank account or more and more cars that I don't know why people want more cars, but I guess like bigger and bigger cars than you know, if you have so many cars and you have to clean them all. Then you know, then we think about this, uh, this, this rat race that we, that we can easily go on. Oh, I want this asana and then this asana and this asana and this asana. And then, you know, well, just like cars, if you have all these asanas, you take care of them all. You're going to do them all every day. You know, oh, great. Now I got all these asanas. Great. What am I going to do with them? Oh, I got to do them every day. I, I, I exhausted the, my fascination for asanas somewhere around the third series. At some moment I realized, please, I don't need more. I can't give them back now, Right. So I have to, now they're mine. I have to take care of these for the rest of my life. You know, it's like, wow. 
that's intense. <laughs> and, uh, uh, but again, we remember we can temper how we do the asanas with that element of vairagya. And we come back to what is the tool of asana? If we think about asana as an anchor for what we call the field of the body, then this is this experience, again, the field of the body, the asana is an anchor for body sensations, body sensations. If we're waking up heightened sensibility in the realm of the body, then asana is working. If we're practicing mindlessly, where asana is not bringing up heightened sensitivity in the body, then asana is not working. All right? So we understand that asana is an anchor for body sensations, an anchor for feeling and awareness in the body. As long as you're using asana for that tool, asana is working. We don't actually need to do deeper and deeper poses, but we have all these poses because some people need deeper and deeper poses in order to feel their bodies and in order to kind of wake consciousness up. So someone with natural flexibility, if you ask them to do like, you know, a relatively, a relatively simple back bend, they're not really going to wake up new feeling in the body. But if you ask someone that is relatively stiff in their back bend to do even a basic back bend, then they're going to have a lot of body sensations. Oh, I feel my whole body is on fire. Then to get that same body on fire sensation for someone with natural flexibility, oh, we have to invent this posture called kapotasana. Oh, you try that one, right? And for even the extremely flexible person that they don't feel their body on fire, then they will have more asanas, you know? The whole, you just look ahead into the third series and if backbending hasn't turned the body on fire yet, then definitely some of the ones in the third series will. The one on the chin, especially. So again, we really this is important to understand, to reflexively understand about what we're what we're attaining, what we're aiming for. That we're aiming to keep the minds bound or anchored, so that we can reach the state of nirodaha. Why do we reach the state of nirodaha? So that then the mind is this clear mirror, and then we can wake up to a truth that's bigger than us, and we can realize, oh, I'm not my mind. What am I then? Again, we're back to this question. Well, who am I really? What is the true self? What is the nature of self? And that is the essential seeker's question that over a lifetime of practice would hopefully turn each of us to whatever capacity we have woken up our consciousness into a seer. So we go from the seeker's journey over a lifetime of practice to whatever capacity we've woken up within ourselves to being a seer on that level. Well, that's the talk I kind of wanted to share with each of you. And we definitely have some more time. So we also can do a little bit of questions if things have come up during your practice. I said we could have some time to chat about that. So I'm not exactly sure how we should do that on this format. But maybe if you have a question, you can go like this and then we can unmute you. And then we can have a little chat about whatever's come up for you during this week of practice or even anything that you wanted to share during the week of practice. All right, Nikki, I see you. I'm unmuting you, Nikki. Okay, you've been unmuted. Hi. Um, I think this is more like a personal question. How do you find that balance between effort and ease and not kind of um, putting yourself down when you don't do enough, but also forgiving yourself when you can't do enough that makes sense absolutely Um, i think it's something that i always struggle with yeah so super good question i think that there are so many of us who experience something really similar so for me um there are a couple of things that have that have come up uh first of all uh when i realized that what i'm actually doing when i step onto the mat is to awaken this state of feeling and sensitivity in the body 
and to quiet the minds, then this allowed me the space in my physical asana practice to be non-attached about certain poses. So there was first that. Second, whenever there's an asana that is really challenging, that's going to bring up stuff for me, I try to make a very clear program of kind of the least amount of work that I will commit to do every day. And I try not to to deviate too much from that program. So for example, if um, like, here's an example, I had a shoulder thing come up for myself last year and I just, I could like, I I lost the ability to jump back. It's still kind of iffy for me right now because I lost the strength and the, the shoulder was super unstable and I just couldn't really, like I couldn't really control the shoulder very well. So whenever I tried to take weight forward in a bent elbow position, the shoulder would just collapsed. And I was like, right, I can't do this. So I had a program for what I would do each time I tried to jump back. And I stuck with that program. I was like, okay, this, I have to find a way to work that's healthy for the shoulder. And so that I don't get into like a downward spiral each the primary series. If you don't, if you're not able to come up with something to jump back, it's just failure, 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 failure. Look, I can't do this. Can't do that. Look, I can't do it again. Look, I did it worse. It's just, just a, it's like a downward spiral. So I came up with, okay, so this is my movement. This is what I do. I inhale, I lift up because my arms are straight. I got that. Then I'm going to touch one toe down and that's enough to support my shoulder. I'll bend the elbow and back to Chaturanga but I couldn't do chaturanga. I was like back to lie in my stomach. So, so, then, so I think it's extremely useful to come up with a small attainable plan that you commit to do about whatever asana is going to bring up that kind of, oh, I should be doing more. Oh, I can't do this. I want to do this. I want to do that. So then, then we come up with that little program and then that program is your checkoff. I did that. If you want to do more, you could. Look, I did that. I did that. I did my little thing. I did my little, my, 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 the three times I tried this. So for example, you're working on Pincha on a day when you feel like completely like, oh, I just can't look at that again. Then you come up with your, you come up with the thing that you've said, I'm going to do the dolphin hold. I did the dolphin hold. That was that. Okay. I'm done. Then you check it off. So you did something and it's part of what you've agreed on with yourself was your program as like a minimum. It's minimum. I'm at least going to do that. If I, you know, so then you do your dolphin and then you come down. Okay. And then that allows you the space to let yourself off the hook for some days when it's really just going to be too much, but you keep just enough discipline so that you don't suddenly start just like auto-deleting poses. You know, you don't want to take, because <laughs> it's, it's tempting, right? I've had students come up to me and ask me that question, like, can I please just like pick and choose? You know, I'd like to, for example, make a petition to remove Marichasana D. This is, students have, many students have come up to me and say that, listen, this is not fair that this pose is there in the middle of the primary. It seems really advanced. I just, I think that, I think the primary series would be really good. Just we remove this one pose. It's like, yeah, I totally understand, but it doesn't work like that. You're going to come up with something you can do for Marichas and Adi, and then you're going to do that. Okay. Right. So then, then that makes it more, you know, more attainable. Does that make sense? Good. Super. Okay. Emily, I see you. I'm unmuting you. Super. You've been unmuted. Hello. Thank you. I have two questions, Kino. Um, one is, how would you recommend to do your asana, pranayama, and meditation practice, like in each order mm. and all together or, or, or separate? And two is, if you want to do everything, it may take two hours or two and a half hours, and you don't always have two or two and a half hours a day. So in that case, which one do you compromise? <laughs> because you always feel, yeah. I personally feel, 
what you said before, like if I don't do the entire primary series, I feel guilty. But mm-hmm. also I have more difficulty of doing my pranayama and, and meditation more because it's just, um, you know, it's more effort to me. So it's also a bit easier for me to do, okay, you know, I'm just more comfortable in primary. I'm just going to do that. And then if I have time for pranayama, I'm going to do it. So what do you recommend, you know, if you just have an hour in the morning or an hour and a half, um, what would you do? Oh, that's a really good question. Super good question. So first of all, um, I think that there are different times that are uh, in your life, where, which are appropriate, the different practices are appropriate for. Uh, for, for example, uh, for, for many years, asana was my primary, my, my primary sadhana or spiritual practice. And then, you know, as we say, asana is a foundation. I would spend a good amount of time in asana and then a very a small amount of time sitting and a small amount of time with pranayama or breath work. And my personal order, just to share with you, like my personal preferred order of practice each day would be meditation, asana, pranayama. I find that I find to try to do pranayama before asana for me, I start, I feel like my, my, my cardiovascular system is not warmed up. I feel like I can't breathe and I'm like trying to breathe. It feels this, like this uphill struggle. So I, I like that the body, I, I find it easier after practice for pranayama. Other people have a different experience. They feel it's better before practice because it sets them up for practice. So good. There's no strict rule about that with pranayama, whether it should be before or after practice. Same with meditation. Some people think the idea of meditating before practice is absurd. They need to get the kinks out of the physical body and then they can sit after practice. So it's totally adjustable. For me, I find meditation, I like meditation first because my mind, especially first thing when I wake up in the morning, is very, very subtle and very, it's like less physical. There's a, there's a, a less sense of kind of the, the material aspect of the mind is less present. So I try to sit as quickly as I can from the moment I wake up in the morning. And I try, I try like no more than half an hour from when I wake up in the morning till I'm on my meditation cushion. And I, tr- I personally try to be extremely disciplined about that because if it goes on, then, then, then that, that subtle, that energetic aspect of the mind, which could be directed into the subtlety of meditation, uh, gets, gets attracted to stuff in the world. You know, it gets attracted to like, oh, I just answered this email. Oh, here's this cool idea for another project that I want to do. And I can very easily get into this space of, and here's a new book I want to write. And I want to write this blog. And I can so quickly go there. So, if, but if I get on my meditation cushion within 30 minutes, that same, uh, frequency of the mind gets directed into the meditation, which is a wonderful space because it's just pure energy. So I really make a, a disciplined effort to do that. Uh, but what do you do? So, and, and then also my personal practice now is I, I sit for an hour in the morning. So There's a full hour. Um, and then I try to get on my asana, get my asana practice as quickly as possible after meditation. And, you know, not more than half an hour break, but I find after a one hour sit, I need a little break before doing asana. Like I can't just like pop up with a meditation cushion and opening prayer and sun salutations. My legs are like, please just lie there for a moment. And also I'm in a space where I want to lie there for a moment. So I have the luxury. I don't, you know, we, Tim and I, we don't have kids. I can just get up at whatever time I want to get up and sit for an hour and then take a little bit of a break and then start the asana practice. The only thing I know I need to get it all done before I teach at the end of the asana practice. That's when I do a little bit of pranayama. I don't do so much pranayama because, you know, I'm maybe, maybe 10, maximum 20 minutes. 
you know, it could, I think it, it's a wonderful practice. Uh, the official Ashtanga yoga pranayama takes one, almost the 30, 30 minutes to an hour, depending on how you do it. If you want to do the full, there's a whole like six different pranayamas. That's the Ashtanga yoga pranayama sequence. It's so super intense and you feel like you're going to die. It's a very, it's a wonderful practice, wonderful thing. I've never been able to do that on my own. Um, so then I, my sadhana would be like four hours long. So I really feel you about that. So what do you do if you only have an hour? And then you think, okay, I have an hour. Then we need to divide and, and, like, and, and allocate resources. It's a little bit like, okay, I have an hour. How can I allocate this? So then if you say, okay, I have an hour, at least 30 minutes of that hour, I want to devote to asana. Then you have 15 minutes pranayama, 15 minutes meditation. Maybe it's too much. Maybe you just need five minutes meditation, five minutes pranayama. So you allocate the resources as is appropriate if you only have an hour. Understanding that you're going to compromise a little bit the asana, you know, the full primary series. You're going to kind of, you know, you're going to compromise that. Um, and that's okay. You know, that's, the, that's the, going to be the vairagya. That's going to be that practice of acceptance. Today, I'm not going to be able to get through the full primary series because I only have an hour. I do, and do you want to ask yourself this question? You know, how little time meditating until I experience a difference? My experience is that as little as five minutes of meditation makes a difference. So, okay, I sit for five minutes. Then, okay, you have an hour, so then you've got 55 minutes left. What's the minimum amount of time for pranayama that you can do to experience a result? Okay, say it's 10 minutes. Now I have 45 minutes for asana. Then you have to make some evaluation. In 45 minutes, I can probably get to half primary series, maybe a little bit further. Okay, so I do that. You can also make some compromises in primary series. I wonder if I can do more poses if I don't jump back and jump through between the sides. Ah, maybe I'll try that for today. Okay, good. So you can make some little compromises like that. And that's the vairagya element. The fact that you're on the mat, you have an hour. It, it definitely, whatever time you spend on the mat is better than not being on the mat. So in that way, you could just, you, you, whatever resources you have, make, it, make a resource allocation, you know, like a good executive and think, okay, what's the minimum amount of time for effectiveness within each of these three categories? And then, you know, allocate accordingly. Okay. Barry, you asked the question in the chat. I see what time do I usually get up and start meditating? My normal meditation time, uh, 6.30, I wake up, 7 a.m. I'm sitting. So from 7 to 8, I sit. And then I'm trying very strongly to get on my mat at like 8.15, usually becomes 8.30. If it's 9, I, the, I, start to get, I start to get hungry at the end of practice. You know? I'm sorry. And this is the thing with setting the body, the body up with systems and schedules is that your body is like a dog in the best possible way, a good dog. Uh, even, even an animal, I should say, because all animals, I don't say like a dog. Also, cats can be trained in, in, for some things. At least what time they eat, they can be trained with, you know? Then they come and meow at you. It's my dinner time. Meow, meow. Uh, you know, like extremely bossy about, you've forgotten to feed me. So, so then uh, if you practice, if you have the same time meditation, same time practice, your body will start meowing at you. Please feed me now, you know? And then if you change your practice time, your body's like, excuse me, this is my feeding time. Why are you putting your leg behind your head right now? And so again, this is important to create the cycles with whatever, whatever time that you have, okay? Good. Uh, Lisa, you have been asking, where did you go, Lisa? Where are you? Lisa had a question, but I don't see Lisa. Did Lisa leave? Lisa, there you are. Oh, okay. Oh, you went away from your, okay. Hi, Lisa. I'm going to unmute you because you said I have a question. 
So I'm older and um, there's many poses in the second series that are really good for for my well-being, for my immune system. So do I have permission to integrate the second series? That's a good question. Which poses are you talking about? Like Ustrasana? Yeah. Ending. Yeah. Absolutely. So, so this is a super good question. Um, so there, there's, there's sort of two answers to this. First answer, uh, and this is true for every single like Hatha yoga practice. If there's some asana that you feel is beneficial to your body and you really feel it, you can do that asana. You know, you feel like, oh, I do this asana, this helps me. Whether it's a stretch that you do against the wall or whether it's, you know, uh, stretching out your ankle, you know, after practice to increase your Achilles tendon, or if you feel, oh, I feel that the Ustrasana helps me breathe better. At any moment, there's some asana you feel is beneficial to your body. You do that asana, right? Second though, if you start thinking about, now I'm going to start doing second series, then second series is another thing. Second series is, okay, I've been practicing primary series for at least a year consistently, full primary series. I know what it is. I'm disciplined about my practice. Then I'm going to start adding on one posture at a time, the poses of second series, understanding that as I add those on, I'm going to be adding those on like, again, for the rest of my life. Kind of <laughs> right. So, so there's like two answers. So I would probably say that, that especially particularly for women, uh, you know, osteoporosis is real and the, the hunching of the spine is something that we want to really, really counteract. So those, those back bends like Ustrasana can absolutely be, uh, you know, integrated into, you know, your, your, your daily practice, how you want to think about that, you know, uh, is up to you, whether you want to think, okay, I'm going to do this in the afternoon. Or I'm going to do this. I'm going to do just Ustrasana as a prep for backbending or whether you just want to do more backbending in primary series, all of those things are possible. Thank you. Super. Okay. Linda, Linda, I see you have a question about adapting the practice. I'm going to unmute you. Oh, you have unmuted yourself. Good. Wonderful. Hear me? Yes. So I was wondering how do I adapt my practice now that it's so long? I feel it's long and I get tired often. And uh, if life is more difficult on some days, <laughs> how can I do it? But still, how can I do the poses from intermediate, but still get the benefits of of the energy at the end, you know? Absolutely. Super good question. So there, are, if there are other people that also have also similar practice, um, Oksana, she also has the practice going up a little bit, Kapotasana a little bit beyond. Sabina, you also have up to Ekapada, and this is long. It's going on forever. You know, you feel, oh, I'm jumping through, I'm jumping through, I have a whole primary series, and now it starts. I got to do this. And then you got to have a whole like Kapotasana mission, you know? Ki and Isadora, you have the same thing. You're, you're all the way there. Like, oh, it's so long. A couple of things. First, you want to look for ease and flow in primary series. You want primary series to move into this ease and flow as much as possible so that we, we struggle less in primary series and you have this kind of feeling of, I let it be what it is. And there's ease and flow. So you save your energy for second series. Number two, if life really is difficult and you don't have the time, you don't cancel your second series unless it's an emotional difficulty. If you're having an emotional day, and you know, there's, there's a lot of uncertainty in your life, then, then you can cancel the second series. But if it's just like, I have a lot of things to do and I only have an hour, then half primary series go into your second. So you keep the consistency with the second series. You can go up to Suptakramasana and then uh, switch to Pashasana. Or you can also, if it's even more tight, you can, after Navasana, switch to Pashasana. This is also acceptable. 
So we want to keep some, some of primary series there so you keep a little warmth in the body and then progress into the, into the second series. This is totally acceptable. But, but again, remember, if it's an emotional thing that you feel like the emotions are overwhelming, then, then it's okay to cancel the second series. Or if you have a like, physical thing that's going on, then it's okay. But if it's just like, okay, I'm getting tired, there's a lot of things going, I need to have energy to go around in my day later, try to go to Supta Karmasana, split to intermediate. I understand. I've seen people do the, sec- the first half of primary and then intermediate or the yes. second half. And mm-hmm. I, I had that, that idea once that I could do one day first half, then yeah. second half. This is, this is also possible. Um, I, I, I think as long as you're doing uh, full primary once a week, which you should be doing full primary once a week, I think that, the, that maybe it's not necessary to switch you know, unless primary series is still somewhat difficult for you, but for you in particular, I think it's probably fine, half intermediate. But but one the days when you have the time, do the whole thing. Mm-hmm. If you have the time, I have the time, nothing else to do. I'm here, do the whole thing. Yeah, I have the time, but I I always felt the benefits of primary series of doing it strictly. Like if it's yeah. the whole primary, I'll do it no matter what. Right. And now <laughs> that it's long, I feel the need to to adapt, but I don't want to allow myself to always think what to do today. Oh, yes. So put yourself on a program and try it out. Try it out. Uh, first, try, can I do primary series easy so it, so, it doesn't, so, so it doesn't take so much energy? Then maybe, do, maybe give yourself like two days a week where you do half primary seconds. Then see how you feel. Okay. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Super. <laughs> Ida, you have a question. I'm going to unmute you. Yeah, Hi. I, I, hi. Uh, I guess it's kind of linked. Um, my question was for how to develop a sustainable home practice, uh, like in the sense of on days when you have like low energy or low motivation, but you still want to practice. So is it better to kind of compromise with yourself by like modifying all the poses, but doing your whole practice or like doing a shorter practice or what kind of thing is good to do on those days? Oh, it's a good question. You know, I have numerous days like that where I, you know, I, I have to, I have to kind of kick my butt, you know, all right, here we go. On days like that and days where you feel the motivation is very, very low. Number one, remember the hardest thing is starting, you know, the hardest thing is starting because you're, you know, you've been practicing for a while. If you just get it started, then the body's kind of like, yeah, yeah, I know this. All right. Okay. I'll do a little more. All right. Bye. You know, the hardest thing is starting. So number one, just start. Number two, remember that sun salutations and standing poses to complete practice. So on days like that, it's super important to give yourself permission. If I just make it through sun salutation and standing poses, I'm good. So give yourself permission. And then I find it really useful to have set yourself up for a success experience. I made it through sun salutation and standing poses. Yay for me. You could sit down and then you ask your body, literally sit there and say, okay, do I can I do more? Do I want to do more? Or shall I just sit down and do the last three poses? And then you answer the question, honestly, you know, I, I feel like, uh, there's no reason to do all the poses every day. You know, there's no reason to do all the poses every day. If you, you know, do, do, if, you know, if you feel like, okay, I can, I feel I have energy just to do a few asanas, then you do just a few asanas. This is okay. But sun salutation and standing, I think that's the benchmark. As long as you get that done, you're good to go. You could sit down and do the last three poses, or you could go a little bit 
into second series or go a little bit through primary series and then say, okay, I've done the little and now I am really done. This is, this is totally okay to have days like this, particularly, you know, when again, we're home, we're just perpetually home and the motivation is low and it's, it's totally okay to have days like that. The, again, for me, the hardest thing is usually starting. I have in sort of my mind, some days where I do a shorter practice and because I have, like, I I feel that I have different series that I can pick and choose from. So, and I usually try to keep, keep things on a program so that I do this on this day, this on this day, this on this day, but I usually end up with one day where I end up with like 30 minutes. And I'm like, what am I going to do with 30 minutes, you know, to practice? It's just the way this schedule organized, you know, some, especially right now, like some people in Europe have convinced me to wake up in the middle of the night on Sunday and teach a class, you know, at the European time zone. So then I'm like, okay, I'm going to get up at four in the morning and stare at a computer for two hours. Awesome. And then, and then somehow I'd also like realize I need to teach in Miami. And that's, oh, great. I have half an hour to practice. This is wonderful. Or I can practice at 6 p.m. No, let me just, get what I need to get done here. Sun salutation, standing poses. And then sometimes what I will do is I'll choose, for me, I'll choose like the first two poses of third, or this is going to sound totally bizarre, but like I only have a small piece of fifth series. So sometimes I'll do only my fifth series poses, which is, sounds ridiculous. And then closing poses and then I'm done. And then it's like half an hour. Okay. Makes sense? You. Yeah. 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 Okay, Valentina, your question too. Okay, I'm going to unmute you, Valentina. Where where did you go? You're over here. People change yes. position a little bit on the screen a little bit. Hi. Hey. <laughs> yeah, hi. Thank you. Yes, um, I was having exactly the same question as Linda because I have started now second series. So my practice is sometimes uh, up to one hour and 50 minutes, one hour and 55 minutes. And uh, it's really tiring, especially because the second series is getting me really deep, really, really deep in the mind, in the emotions, in the body, the upper body, the back bend. It's just, uh, it's just really overwhelming. And so you answer so I can, I can uh, skip maybe the second uh, half yeah. uh, of Up to Supta Kurmasana. Yeah. And then start with the, with the other one when, uh, okay, that's, yeah. And as you said, it's so difficult because I feel guilty yeah. <laughs> when, I don't do, when I don't do full primary, you know, you have this sensation of why, why yeah. do I choose this other and not the other one? <laughs> you know? Oh yeah. But the, save the energy and put it into your second series. Number one. Yeah. Number two, remember, try to find ease and flow in primary series. Yeah. Ease and flow in primary series. Honestly, one of my favorite practices is primary series plus second up to Kapotasana. I feel like this is an awesome practice. I feel like this really solves the problem that many people say about primary series. Oh, so much forward bending, forward bending, forward bending. Okay, here, do these back bends. Immediately people complain. Oh, it's too long. There's too many back bends. It's too much. Oh, you were complaining that there was too many forward bends. Now there's too many back bends. We can never win. So, yo, here, take the back. Oh, no, I take no, too many back bends. Let's go back to forward bending. So, anyhow, I think that if you find the ease and flow in primary series, that that can actually be quite a good practice. But if you don't find the ease and flow in primary series and you're like working in primary series, it's overwhelming. Then you're working primary series. And the second series, you have to work in those back bends. Even yeah. if you're naturally flexible, you have to work in those back bends. 
So remember, try to find the ease and flow in primary series. It, and then on the days that that doesn't happen, then split after Supta and then put your energy into second. It's also super important that once you get new poses, new asanas, particularly a new series, there is the, the, the temptation to revert back to the easy. There's like the revert back. So once you get the new poses, you want to do everything you can to keep those asanas in your daily practice. Even if, if that means adjusting primary series, then that's fine. You want to do everything you can to keep the continuity of, again, those new poses. And that's true if you're, you know, if you're finished with second and also starting third. There's many people that, oh, it, it only gets worse. It's not like it gets better. You know, when you finish second series, you start doing third series. It's not like, oh, this is great. Let me throw in a bunch of awesomeness here. I mean, Leah, she can definitely tell you about that. Like she's splitting second series for the same, you know, for the same reason that, you know, the second series and add on all these third series that, that is that what, what where, where Leah is stopping. That's probably the hardest practice that Ashtanga yoga. No, I, that's not true. One of the hardest practices that Ashtanga yoga can, can, can give to you where you have full second series plus almost half of the third series. If you do this truly traditionally, this is almost a three hour practice. And it just goes on forever. You're going here, going there, going here, going there. It just it goes on. And it, like emotionally, what you put into that, I would, it's just, yeah. Okay. So we, yeah. Have to, we have to allow ourselves to make those adjustments so that you can keep your energy for the, the new asanas that are there. And, and the, the whole reason that you're given new asanas is that, okay, well, primary series now is in this state of ease and flow. So let's add in some new challenge, some new body awareness. Remember the three anchors. So now we're thinking about, here's a new asana. What's that new asana? You know, I mean, Sharad, he jokes, he says, oh, new asana, new pain. But it's, you know, it's not like that. You know, it's not only pain. It's supposed to be new asana, new feeling. We feel new parts of the body, this sort of thing. Okay, now we have a new challenge to the breath. Now we have a new challenge, you know? So well, this is uh, this is something really, really, really useful. Great, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you, Emily. You got another question? I'll unmute you again. Sorry, yeah, I have another two. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, can you elaborate a little bit about um, you know you said several times this weekend today again about second series and how it uh, raises some uh, negative and negative emotions? So are they only negative? And what about the other series? Is primary more meant to get used to it and, and get the discipline, or are you also meant to have those emotions? Um, and then the second one is um, I've um, read this week on one blog or something about someone who was asking, when do you know that you have to go into the second series? And some people were saying um, quite quick after the primary because you do too many forward bends. I don't feel it's right, but I. It was the first uh, time I was reading about that. I don't feel bad about the, the forward bend, so it just raised a question about is it true or not. So. Yeah, no, good questions. Super good question. Yeah, so first, uh, let's talk a little bit about like when do you know you're ready to do a second series. So there are a couple of things. First of all, I usually like to say one year of primary series. You know, number one, one year of primary series. If, even if the, even, there are some people that they're going to walk in off the street and they can do every asana in primary series. This does not mean that the person immediately they should do second series. So I think it's a one year primary series, at least as a minimum. If somebody's doing primary series for more than five years and they, you know, they haven't really progressed much in backbending, there's no movement, then maybe it's appropriate at that point to explore, okay, let's start. Even, even if the asanas are not 
like all lined up, then at this point, okay, we can start bringing in some of second series. And this is adjustable for each student. So I feel like this is kind of the, the it's like not a strict rule, but the, the one year primary series, I think it is really, really useful so that you can just get grounded in that. Then we have some little leeway. Traditionally, we usually say that when you stand up and drop back from backbend, that's the time when you want to start second series. And one of the reasons for that is that standing up and dropping back from backbend, as you know from the work you're putting in, really, really good work you're putting in every morning, is that it's a mission. You know, you're on a little mission. I got to go here, I got to hang, I got to crawl up and down the wall, I gotta do this, I gotta do that. It's like a whole thing. If you start adding in second series, then you might not have the energy to do the backbend mission. So it's like until the backbend mission is accomplished, maybe we don't want to add more missions into the body. But then there's some people that the backbending is not a mission. They just go up, they go down, they go up, they go down. Good for them. You know, then, then for that person, when they get to primary series, just put in a little bit of work and then they maybe can start second series sooner because they don't, they don't having the backbending mission. To solve the question of, does primary series have too many forward bends, we create this backbending mission. So, okay, you don't just do three from the floor. You're going to three from the floor. You're going to stand up. You're going to hang back three times. You're going to walk up and down the wall. You're going to do assisted backbends. You're going to end up doing like 10 and then maybe even more backbends. So then like, okay, we have enough backbending now. So then it's this kind of, you know, that people say it's this chicken and egg question, you know, of like, okay, well, my backbend is stiff, so I should do second series to open my backbend. You know, it's like the chicken and the egg question. Within a certain reason, I would say that if someone's put in the work to try to drop back and stand up and they've tried to do it that method for a while and it hasn't worked, then it's okay. We can consider starting second series. But unless we try kind of to give the student the backbending mission, then I feel like some people, they never go on the backbending mission. I've met some practitioners that have been practicing for like 10 years and they somehow uh, have learned either through a video or through just like self-practice, the whole of primary series, whole of second series. They never tried to stand up and drop back from backbend. So then they never learned and they never put in the work. And then they're like, then, then the practice is, is second series so hard that they're like, I don't have the energy to put in these backbends. So they have to like go back to primary series so they can learn the backbending mission. So the backbending mission is important, right? Then the, the second question was about the emotions in the practice. So what we understand, primary series is, is, is said to be called yoga chikitsa, like yoga therapy, and is first meant to establish like health and healing in the body. So we're meant to get energy, like just healthy energy moving in the body, health, healing the organ systems. Of course, there are going to be some emotions that bubble up to the surface in primary series too. Absolutely. And the idea is twofold, that first of all, when the body becomes healthy, then the, it's, it's more of a clear field for experience. And then second, the emotions that are stimulated in primary series are meant to be the, like the teaching of a safe laboratory of a lesson of how to deal with strong emotions when they come up. So for example, people have it in uh, Supta Kurmasana, people have it in Marichasana D, people have it in the backbending mission. Some people have it in jump back and jump through that they get like emotionally irritated, you know, like, I can't believe I can't do this. People like, you know, Marichasana D is like, uh, it's twisting, brings up stuff for people. People get into, try to get into Marichasana D can end up in like a downward spiral of, I hate this pose and I hate my body and why do we have to do this? This is terrible. I wish I was, you know, all this, you just go into this Marichasana D spiral. So now if we think about it, if we think about, okay, here I am. This is the lesson that's there. Whatever's come up in primary series, 
Then we take a look at second series, Nadi Shodana, nervous system cleansing. So when we come into nervous system cleansing, then the, then the poses are stronger triggers. So whatever you experienced in primary series, you can expect like a, a multiplication of, you can expect something bigger. So it's like a, a preview that taught you hopefully in primary series, how to face that emotional difficulty so that you have something in your toolbox that you can bring out when whatever, whatever is your stuff, when it comes out to a greater degree in second series. The second series is, is a magnifier and accelerator. It's going to bring out more and more stuff. Whatever you experienced in primary series is going to get magnified and, and multiplied in the second series. Many people I know quit Ashtanga, primarily quit in the second series. You know, I rarely meet somebody that quit in primary series. Well, first of all, almost all the poses in primary series, we have a modification that feels good. You know, you can't do Marichasana, do okay, fold your foot under. Okay, can't do Bhujapitasana, do like this. Oh, you can't do Lotus, do like this. You get the second series, it's not, like, you can't really modify, you know, like, maybe you can modify some of the, Bekasana, right there, right from Bekasana, life is miserable, you know, you, what are you going to do if you can't do Bekasana, if you have a knee injury, you can't fold your knee, what do you do, you know, there's maybe an alternative, you know, but that's not really something you can do, what do you do when you get to Dwipadashirshasana, there's no modification, like, oh, let me grab this block and put it behind my head, that's, like, not functional, you know, so primary series is all these modifications, but the second series, no, very little modifications. You can't really modify. So uh, many people I know quit, Ashtanga quit in second series. Then they're confronted, the em negative emotions come up to the surface, and then it's super confrontational. Like, I just can't get both legs behind my head. I don't know what to do. I'm just blocked here. And so faced with that blockage, you have the choice of I'm going to sit with it or and work with it and see how it goes, or I'm going to quit. And the people I know who quit usually quit somewhere in second series. Once you finish second series, I, I, I've only known one person really who's, who's like quit the practice, and that's because he was too good at the practice. And that sounds really weird. But I knew someone, his name was Fabio. He was a wonderful, amazing practitioner from Brazil. And he came to Mysore, and the guy in Mysore, he practiced you know, first series, second series, third series, fourth series. I never saw him sweat. And it's the, I didn't see, the, the, the band didn't sweat in India and he could just do everything. And then he said, at some moment he said, this uh, Ashtanga yoga, it's, it's too easy for me. I need to find another challenge. I thought, okay, good for you. Go find your challenge. Uh, then, I, I don't know where he found his challenge, but uh, he left the practice and, you know, again, at some other physical potential. So I guess maybe also if you're like uh the world-class uh, contortionist, then at some moment, maybe Ashtanga becomes too easy for you and you have to go and join the circus for a new challenge. Okay. So, Barry, uh, you had a question? I'm going to unmute you. Yeah, more of, um, for when you're teaching new students that are used to doing vinyasa or different types of yoga and they come... Sometimes they come to the class really excited, but then you start teaching them jump backs and jump throughs, even if you give them a lot of modifications and they, they think it's just too hard. So how to keep them interested and keep them coming? Well, there are a couple of things. Like first, Ashtanga is not for everyone. So maybe it's not for them. You know, it's a little bit like, hey, I've got this really awesome vanilla ice cream. And then they're like, hmm, I was kind of hoping for chocolate. And you're like, oh, I could put some chocolate sprinkles on it. You know, and they're like, mm, I was really like wanting chocolate with chocolate chip. Oh, well, I can add chocolate sauce. And someone is going to, you know, some people are just not for them. 
that's okay. Be like, all right, it's not for you. Cool. You know, maybe they, maybe they would be what they want is something lighter. Okay, fine. Not for you. But what we want to think about is like, not everybody that comes to our class needs to stay in our class. We want to, we want to, and we want to think about, oh, that I was, I was speaking with someone that it's like, you want to attract the right people, you know? So the person that, that they're going to feel like it's just, it's too difficult. It's too much. Then maybe it's not for them. But second, maybe it's possible to segment classes. So one of the things I find when people feel like it's overwhelming is nobody likes to be the one person modified. You know, then they, then they feel like really discouraged and they're like, oh, it's still too difficult. Even if I try to do this, it's not good because then they feel singled out. My, my mom actually is the one like that. Like she's like, you know, in her seventies with two total knee replacements, try to give the woman a modification. And she's like, I'm just going to bust it out. I'm like, you're going to bust your knees out. Don't bust it out. I'm going to, I'm going to get this jump back. And I'm like, actually, no, you're not, <laughs> you know, like your knees are never going to bend more than 90 degrees or you're going to get another knee surgery. So actually, no, let's do this modification. She will not modify. She will kill herself. So what I find is like there's people like that, then they need to be in a class where everybody is modifying, where the entire class is just, this is, this is, this is what we do. It's not that this is an alternative. This is what we do. You know, that's an extremely difficult space to hold because, you know, then it's beginner Ashtanga. And then the people that come to be like, like that person it's like an interesting type of being because that person who's going to come to beginner Ashtanga is willing to say, I'm a beginner. The person who comes to full primary series, but feels like it's too hard and doesn't want to modify is not going to show up to beginner Ashtanga class. So then like you as a teacher kind of make a decision. I'm just going to teach this as a beginner Ashtanga class because I'm seeing the, ma- the majority of the students here need it to be at this more accessible level. So we're not going to, we're actually going to just do modifications and that's what it's going to be. And then those individuals that can do more, I'm going to go to those individuals who can do more and say, Hey, you can actually do more. Why don't you come to like a different class or something like that? that Makes sense. Yeah. Valentina, you had another question. Let's unmute you. Okay. Hi. Hey. I was writing in the chat, but then uh, it's, uh, it's nicer just to talk. And yesterday you were talking with another student about the um, energy, about the prana that we want to uh, lift up with the, modif- with the rotation of the pelvis in the last three posture of the closing sequence mm-hmm. or something like that. If you remember, would you mind uh, remind uh, us about it? Yeah. So there was, I think there were two questions. One was, why do we take the right leg first in the lotus position? And then do I tuck my tailbone for Padmasana position? So the right leg first in the lotus position, uh, is usually meant to repeat the right side first that we have in the whole practice. And then when you fold forward in yoga mudra, right leg first is the left leg on top. Then the direction that's pressed on the organs is we're pressing the right side of the organs first, which then encourages elimination. Which again, if you read a lot of these old yogic texts, uh, the yogis are a little bit obsessed with elimination. I don't know if it was an issue back in the ancient days of India, but there's a lot of yoga poses that have the benefit of encouraging elimination from the body. And I guess we're never as happy as we as our bowel movements are, so that's always a helpful added benefit. So we wanna, we definitely wanna push things out, not keep things in down there. You know, definitely we're going in that direction. Then the, the, the second thing, which is related to like the prana and apana, so that, the, that we're thinking about that the right leg first in the lotus position is trying to get the energy to come up the spine. 
Mm-hmm. And then when the energy is rising up the spine, we're thinking about our energy moving into the Shashumna channel. And we're thinking about having that subtle flow of energy that can activate the pineal gland, giving us these sort of altered states of consciousness. Uh, then from, again, what Patabi Joyce used to say, and also what I've read about what the left leg first and lotus does is it brings the energy down the spine. And without you doing anything, your energy is going down the spine. So what, what then, and then we get all, we get into these like very esoteric concepts that are presented in some of the yogic shashtas, which is that there, there is this, um, essence of our, like our vital life essence called the Amri Bindu, uh, which yes. is, you know, I said to be kind of, if we take it into modern, uh, like scientific terms, a, a sort of a metabolite of the pineal gland that gets excreted. And what the old shastras say is that the, without the, without controlling your prana, this Amrit Bindu will fall down the spine and then get burned up in the digestive system and then essentially be uh, shed. And so that we no longer, you know, we just, we no longer have it anymore. And, and then as that goes, our vitality is decreasing. Our life energy is decreasing. And, you know, Patapi Joyce used to say, left leg lotus, death is coming. <laughs> so I was like, okay, well, let's put the right leg first then. How about that? I'm good. Let's do right leg first. Then the other question was about the pelvic position in, in a Padmasana position. So we're in our contemporary yoga worlds, particularly like in, you know, just contemporary like yoga teaching, like yoga teacher trainings, and all this sort of stuff are very interested for whatever reason in like tucking the tailbone. This is like a thing like tuck the tailbone and we're all like, you know, tuck the tailbone forever. And it's like a thing that I don't know. It's like a, in every posture, we get really concerned with don't bend your back, tuck your tailbone. It's like, I was like, okay, so that, that's good for some things, but we should also have the ability to sit in a neutral spine. So Padmasana position, because it's this meditative state and because when we're breathing, we're trying to get the energy to come up the spine. You want your natural spinal curve to be expressed. So the natural spinal curve of the lumbar spine is a natural you know, a natural, the natural lumbar curve should be, so you tuck your tailbone, you're going to flatten the lumbar curve. It's going to pull your energy down a little bit. You can feel that in the back of the pelvis. So you're shifting forward into the front of the sitting bones to allow your natural lumbar curve to be expressed, which can then lift the rib cage. So the energy can come up the spine. So we're, in other words, we're pivoting forward a little bit into uh, the hip joints. Okay. Again, when you do Udplutihi, you're tucking your tailbone and hunching under. So then you're curving under and lifting up. So it's a different position. But Padmasana, you're meant to be seated forward just a little bit. Make sense? Amazing. Yeah. So in, in another uh, question that comes with that one then. So what about then um, in the Utkatasana, Vidabhadrasana A and B? Because we... The, the, the upper body is uh, coming up in Utkatasana, uh, uh-huh. in Virabhadrasana A. No, not in Virabhadrasana B, but still we are in that kind of opposite forces down with the hips and up with the, with the chest. So what about those postures there? So uh, Utkatasana, uh, there, you want to keep the tailbone in a neutral position. Don't tuck it under like crazy, just neutral. It's just a chair pose. It should feel like you're sitting, almost going to sit down into a chair. So when you sit down into a chair, you don't tuck your tailbone like crazy, but you don't arch it out a lot either. So it's in a neutral position. And what this allows the pelvis to do is travel back. And when the pelvis travels back, you squeeze the knees together. The, there are a couple of things that happen just anatomically. Squeeze the knees together, send the pelvis back. You're going to push your femurs a little bit deeper into their sockets. Then you're stretching 
and creating flexibility around the posterior portion of the hip capsule. This is the first place we lose flexibility in as we age. You know, aging parents have a hard time getting up and down from a low sofa. So we're thinking about keeping that posterior portion of the hip capsule flexible. If you tuck your tailbone, you're going to restrict the movement too much. If you flip the tailbone out, you're going to lose your bandhas. So we want the tailbone neutral, knees together, and then pelvic floor engaged, belly inside, lift the spine out of the pelvis as much as possible. That's Utkatasana. Warrior one, or Virabhadrasana A, is a backbend. People don't, like, people are, like, terrified of the backbend, this posture. But the, the, the reason why that it's essentially, like, it's, it's a backbend without being a backbend. You know, you're not actually bending back or that's reverse warrior. So the reason why it's a backbend is because you have one hip that's in a hip extension. So that back hip is, is even though it's externally rotated, it's a very strong hip extension. You're meant to stretch your psoas. So the front leg, ideally, your knee goes forward enough so your thigh bone is parallel with the ground. Okay. Thigh bone parallel with the ground, back hip in extension. The only way your torso can be in line with the pelvis is if you, if you have a little bit of a back bend. So the idea is that you're lifting your spine up, straight up, so that you simply find the vertical line and lift up. But because that back hip is in a hip extension, especially around the lower back, you'll need a little bit of back bend in order to find your vertical line. If you try to tuck your tailbone, you'll work count... Like you'll counteract the hip extension that is essentially the whole foundation of the posture. Yeah. The foundation of the posture is more grounded into the back leg than it is into the front leg. If you push weight too much into the front leg, you can push a little bit too much weight in your patella tendon and stress the knee and give yourself runner's knee. Instead, your weight is pulling back into the leg that's in hip extension. Make sense? Yeah. Also warrior two, I don't know why warrior two, there's like a tuck the tailbone thing that goes around the universe with warrior two as well. Warrior two is one of the strangest looking poses if you tuck the tailbone. Yeah. If you tuck the tailbone in warriors, it like disturbs the whole spine. So we want to have a neutral, like a neutral position of the pelvis. So the tailbone is heavy, not flipped out, not tucked up, neutral. Natural lumbar curve. Then with the natural lumbar curve, then only... You can press into the legs and then the legs can really kind of do the work. Yeah. yeah. Good. That makes sense. Thank Super. you. Thank you. David, did you, you also had a question? I did. Um, this question I think came up before I started doing Ashtanga, but I think it's still relevant. Okay. Um, I, it's kind of a question about like the coherence between my life on the mat and my life off the mat. Um, I think there are times when like, the, my, like my mat time is the one time in my day that like things make sense. Yeah. But then when I like sit back at my desk or start interacting with people, kind of like everything else falls apart. And I remember, bef- I mean, this is a question before I did, started Ashtanga and like a relationship with practice was, was a little different, but it was, I was still practicing. And it really bothered me that I couldn't bring what I found on the mat into my life. And it kind of made it feel like, like it was disheartening because it made it feel Mm. meaningless. Mm. And it actually stopped me from practicing. And I I don't know if if it like the disheartening was part of it and learning to practice through that was part of the lesson. But um, I think I would really like to hear your thoughts on on this. So I mean, a super good question, and I just commend you for doing the work of taking the lessons that you learn on your mat into your life. It's super hard. 
you know, and that's something that's easy and not something that people think about. So I really just want to commend you on that. That's, that's, that's the true intention of the practice and you're doing the work. The second thing, just like your practice, uh, it's not going to be, it's not going to be like a one-to-one. You're not going to succeed in life, just like the way you don't succeed in our yoga practice. So mm-hmm. here's an example, um, of, of, uh, of, of something that can happen as, as the way you take kind of the lesson of the practice into, the, into life. So let's say you have a repetitive thought or reaction pattern that's destructive. Let's just say it's an anger pattern. I'm not saying you have an anger pattern, it's an example, right? So let's say you have an anger thing. Then, and then when this gets triggered, you notice your performance and work decreases, your you know, compassion decreases, and, and, then you, and then you notice that. That's a pattern, right? Before the practice, you didn't even realize you had this pattern then it was just going on its own. Then you start doing the practice. You realize, oh, I have this anger thing. Then still it gets triggered. Then you're practicing, 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 get off the mat. Then the anger thing is triggered. Then you're in this anger loop. Then you notice it three months into the anger loop. You've just been hating, 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 hating three months. You're like, oh, okay. Now I'm in the anger thing. Okay. I have to stop that. And somehow you, you put in the work and you come out of it. It's not like you're never going to experience it again. Then two months later, again, another anger loop. But instead of lasting three months, it lasts two and a half months. So it's a little bit of progress. And then so it like, it lessens, it softens, it softens the edges, but it's not an, it's not a quick fix or a panacea. You still need to do the work off the mat. You still need to be hyper cognizant moment by moment. So those three anchors, you need to carry those with you into your life. So you're in this interaction. So I'm here, I'm here, I'm talking, I'm talking, I'm feeling body, my body, I'm feeling body sensations. I'm aware of my breath, my breath. I'm aware of my thoughts, my thoughts, my mental focus. When that's gone, the continuity of practice is also gone. Then we're caught in the web of whatever thought we're in. We're not actually practicing in that moment. The way to take the practice into the life is to practice in life. So I'm here, I'm in a conversation. I have to be actively engaged in the same methodology that is present during practice, or I can't just think that because I practiced and I felt that there that I'm going to have it here. So it's, just, it's so hard. I think it's harder. I think it's dramatically harder to be in an intense conversation and be like, okay, where are my three anchors? I'm here. I'm managing my emotions. I'm feeling my breath. And there's my body. There's a weird, I'm feeling heating sensations, heating sensations, heating. I'm on fire. I'm on fire. You know, and then, you know it's, it's extremely difficult. But if you do that, there's, there is a dramatic change that can happen. But again, it is harder. And then you really start to see, oh, everything I'm doing on the mat, it's preparing me to practice in real life, to keep my three anchors present as I'm engaging with this person, engaging in this work activity, because throughout every day, we've lost it. You know, we don't feel the body and we're just caught in the inertia of the past. We don't feel the breath. We're just caught in the stream. So, 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 so if you want to start doing that, you know, I would probably recommend you choose like one anchor of the mind to be constant with throughout the day. Okay. I'm just going to constantly bring my attention back to the breath so that I'm, you know, I'm sitting, I'm, I'm working, I'm at my computer. I'm just going to, okay. Every, every, you know, every 10 minutes, every 30 minutes, I'm just going to do a little, how's my breath? Check it. Thank you so much. That's really, really helpful. (laughs) No, I'm good, good on you for putting in the work. Yeah. Catherine, you have a question? Well, yeah. And actually, um, can you hear me? I yes. Know if I was unmuted. Okay. No, you're um, good. It actually follows up to what he just asked you. It's, I was going to ask him to something similar. Um, during 
this uh, time period, this time frame that we're in, this whole COVID experience. Um, like my, I mean, my practice has has been my anchor. You know, like it's been what's kept me, you know, present and, and relatively sane. But then at the same time, I have days when I feel like all I can do is practice, and then I can't function. And I don't want the practice. I just know that there's a danger for the practice to become kind of like an escape rather than utilizing it skillfully to then take your practice off and that into your world. So yeah, I was going to see if you just had any suggestions like during specifically related to this time. And I think too, it's just kind of echoes like what you've been talking about this whole period, but being alone, you know, I live alone and I work alone and I'm alone all the time. So it's like, I'm hyper conscious of my subconscious <laughs> and it's like, holy cow, it's crazy up there, you know? And so that Narodaha state is like getting to that state, getting to that stillness feels so good. Right. But I, again, like if you can just speak to it, not being an escape, but navigating it as more of a tool. I don't know if that is it. Mm-hmm. Hmm. The only way that practice would be an escape is if you are using it to um, distract your mind or run away from something. But I find yeah. that in Ashtanga, we don't, it doesn't work like that. Like you come in and you sit with your stuff. Yeah. So yeah, yeah, yeah. The, 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 the time, the only time, honestly, if I can be a hundred percent honest, the only time I've ever felt asana practice to be an escape was when I'm on meditation retreats and mm-hmm. then I'm on meditation retreat and then I'm there to meditate. And then I'm like, Oh, I'm going to do some asana because it's like mm-hmm. entertaining compared. To, I mean, if we, if you think like, like the like asana and being alone is 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 like the subconscious mind and those thoughts are there if you have like a silent meditation retreat where you where all you're doing is sitting all day and then you're specifically told like don't do asana and you're like oh i just have to sit here and be with my thoughts all day for nine hours a day and then and then what often happens in like meditation retreats is sometimes you can't sleep at night because the mind is in this like really hyper aware state so then you're like aware of yourself falling asleep. So then you don't mm-hmm. sleep, but then you like enter the space and then they're like, oh, if you can't sleep at night, continue to bring your attention to your breath and meditate throughout the night. You're like, I just want to sleep. <laughs> you know? Yeah. So I don't think that right now, that I don't think that an ashtanga really can be used as an escape necessarily right now. As long, as long as you know, you're going in, you're putting in the work. But those days when you feel I can practice and I can do nothing else, that's something to take a look at because uh, particularly during these times when I have had very strong emotions come up to the surface and like really strong emotions, anxiety, uncertainty, you know, depression, like all of my, all of my negative triggers like bubble up to the surface. Like they're all just right there. Like, ah, then I, I re- like at that moment, I, I, I realized I need to do primary series because like, this is like, I don't need, I don't need the asanas to trigger something. I'm triggered. I need something to help me process this trigger. So primary series, like, okay, I'm going to do primary series. I'm going to settle my mind and I'm going to work. I'm going to work on untying these knots. I'm going to work on unwinding these knots rather than, okay, I'm triggered. Let me trigger some more. I'm like, oh, I'm, I'm going through stuff. Let me just process and what is, the, what is the main tool of, of, particularly when we're triggered, it's a mental loop. So one of the ways we can get out of the mental loop so we can get more clarity on it is to re- re-embody. So this is why, again, primary series to get out of the mind, into the body, into that breath-body connection where, you know, mind and heart come into coherence, 
breath is moving in a coherent you know, methodology, our nervous system gets down to common connect, and we can then see reflectively what that mental loop was about from a different perspective. Yeah. So, yeah. So watch that on days that you feel triggered and be like, okay, maybe today primary series is good for me, you know? Okay. And, the, and then that can be really, really useful. I, again, I don't, I don't, I don't think that, 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 you know, Ashtanga is an escape for these days because we are, you know, we're here, we, we're, we need a place to process. We need a place to go in and feel. The, right. the, the escape would be, you know, day drinking. <laughs> True. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. All right. Thank you. Yeah. Super. Okay. Oksana, you've got a practical question about Purvatanasana. Oh, hold uh-huh. on. Yes, yeah, when uh, Shiraz was teaching last Saturday, he said in Purvatanasana, close your feet together. Yes. So I thought it's like toes and heels together, and but you have to keep your legs in internal rotation. Yes. But when you bring your heels together, they externally rotate. So I was like... I don't think I he was talking to you. Body. Yeah, I don't think he was talking to you. I think he's talking to the person whose feet are like this. Ah, okay. <laughs> well, but I thought like in second series, your heels and toes together in Shalabhasana and all other backbends and Purvatanasana is a backbend too. So I thought, hmm. but hmm. I, I always do, base <laughs> the, I always do base of the big toes together in Purvatanasana and internally but it, rotate. But it's very hard to keep heels together. So then if you, if you have the heels together, you start to externally rotate, you squeeze the butt a little and the whole like kinetic chain of what, what's working physically starts to degenerate. So I, I, I pretty much think he wasn't talking to you. You know, there's like all these people on zoom and there's like one, (laughs) there's like one person whose feet are out like this, then he's like, keep your feet together. And then all the people who don't need to do it, this is classic for teaching. You give one direction out, you're talking to one student, everybody who doesn't need that direction, they do that direction. The ones yeah. who, you know, the ones who they, they really need it, they're, they're like, uh, you know, they can't be talking to me. I don't know, you know? <laughs> so I think that's a classic example. Like your Purvatanasana is totally good as it is. You don't need to change it. The, it's, it's working really, really well. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. I was yeah. just um, overthinking that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Also, the, the language is, is, is something. So, you know, when Shratta's feet together... It, he, he's very, very accepting to, you know, base of the big toes together, this kind of thing. But, uh, but then like to be very specific is, is something that comes with, with a high level of fluency in English. You know, mm-hmm. uh, Patabi Joyce was even like, his English was so limited and he would say there because of his accent, there were things that sounded the same. Let me give you an example. Toes points, close binds. You're like, what was that? Toes, <laughs> toes point, close your bind. <laughs> you know and then like we're here like oh my goodness what do i need to do and then to practice with him we'd be trying all this kind of stuff like i do this i do that i do this i do that i don't know because you don't know what he's saying and then you just do that and he yells more and you're like i don't even know what to do like uh karnapidasana uh he was he used to say toes point in karnapidasana closing series and for many years, I heard close bind and I would like squeeze my hands together. Like I had to close my hands. And then I'm like, oh, he's telling you to point your toes. You can relax your hands. You know what I mean? <laughs> <laughs> you okay. know, there's, a, there's an even funnier one with him, which um, uh, David Life and Sharon Gannon, they're the founders of Jiva Mukti, for they, he used to say, you take it, your anus, you know, like for Mulabanda. And they totally went into an overthinking state. You know, Joyce' last name is astrologer. So they were like, ooh, he's talking about the planet Uranus. 
We should be thinking of Uranian energy <laughs> as we're practicing. I'm going to think of Uranus, you know, and, and it was totally, completely off. They were really overthinking it. And also, again, the, the, the fluency. And so they spoke to someone and they're like, no, he's saying you need to squeeze your anus. Like, it's yeah. more fun. And they're like, oh, really? It's not the planet? Uh, I thought we're welcoming the age of Aquarius and Uranus is helping, you know, so... It's good to ask the question to double check in case we find ourselves um, hearing yeah. the wrong thing. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> cool. Okay. Super. Well, thank you. you know, so can I ask you just oh, yeah. a last, uh, last oh, yeah. thing, one second, please? Absolutely. Uh, related to this one, because last Saturday, um, especially in the uh, Sarvangasana sequence, and uh-huh. I think it was also in the Padmasana um, there was Shara that was saying something like uh, cross pine. <laughs> Close your bind, maybe. Ah, okay. So it was saying to grab the. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I think there were some people in shoulder stand who were just holding their lotus and he wanted them to bind their hands. Ah, okay. Yeah. Because I was thinking, what is what should what should I do with my spine? <laughs> exactly, exactly you. It wasn't for you. There's somebody there like, uh, and he's telling them to try to hold on to their hands. Okay. So next uh, tomorrow after the conference, we'll have a translation session uh, for any I'm just kidding. Yeah, Make a joke that'd be now. lovely. Yes, <laughs> Thank you so much. Yeah, Leah, he did. He did like uh, he did he did seven sun salutation A and five sun salutation B. He knew it because he said Oh, two extra. Yeah. <laughs> we're at home like, uh, why we're doing two extra just because we're on remote. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I think the reason why, if I'm honest with you, because people were logging on late. So then, you know, he's there and he's watching like the participant numbers go up and he's like, oh, you're late. Oh, oh, so many late. Oh, we do more. You know, so we should all be on time for the Sharad class. Then we don't need to do 87 sun salutations. Yeah. No, it is. It's sold out. Yeah. Because, uh, oh, and also... Last week, we went to a webinar format, and the webinar format allowed us to have up to 3,000 people. But the webinar format, you can't see everyone like this. You can only see maximum 100 people. So Sharat said that he liked to see everyone. He doesn't like the webinar format, so he went, we have to limit it to 1,000. So it was uh, just only 1,000 people. It sounds like only 1,000 people, but there's so many people that want to take practice. So that's why we switched back and limited the numbers again. And there were a lot of people... You also, you can't see yourself in the webinar format if you're an attendee. And there were a lot of people that were like, why can't I see myself? People, I don't know, we're very, they've got a lot of messages. I want to see myself. Like, you need to see yourself? You're practicing. You don't see your, you know, it's like, you, you get a mirror. I don't know. You know what I mean? People were like, I cannot see myself. I would like to see myself. How do I see myself? Like, okay. We really, we need to see ourselves during practice. So I'm you know, just so. sad because since this all started, I've either done your live class or Sharat. And this yeah. is like I'm alone tomorrow for the first uh, time. You can take tomorrow off. I'm doing a guided primary on Sunday. Do you want to take tomorrow off? I will do that. Okay, perfect. Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Always some solution. <laughs> yeah. yeah, cool. Okay, let's, shall we do the closing prayer? Super, yeah. Swasti Prajagyaha Paripadayantam Nyayena Margena Mahim Mahishaha Gobramanevyaha Shubamastunityam Lokaha Samastaha Sukhino Bhavantu 
Shanti, Shanti, Shanti. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you, thank you. It's been really nice to share this time with you. So thank you so much. I really appreciate it. Hey there, it's Kino here. I just wanted to thank you for tuning in to my podcast. Your support and your time and your attention really mean a lot to me. If you're enjoying this podcast series, you can find the full-length videos on my online channel, OMSTARS. And that's at www.omstars.com. You can redeem a 14-day free trial and get access to our full library of over 3,000 classes and also practice yoga with me online. I'd also love to see you in class sometime. So you can find my full live in-person teaching schedule on my website, which is kinoyoga.com. And if you haven't checked out my books, I'd absolutely be honored if you'd check those out. You can find those available at any online bookseller. The Yoga Inspiration Podcast is designed to keep you inspired to get on the mat. And I hope you're leaving each episode with a little glimmer and spark of the spirit which is the true heart of the yoga method. Thanks so much for tuning in, everyone. May you be happy. May you be peaceful. May you be filled with love. Namaste.